You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our reading this evening comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse number 18 through chapter 4, verse number 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would uh, illumine your word to us. We are thankful for it. We pray that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And we pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated if you're here with us. I forgot to take my mask off, uh, but this is, this is great. Uh, it's like a small taste of return to life together with you. Uh, we found out, like, well, like five minutes before the service was starting, uh, the printer wasn't working either. I think it was also uh, afflicted by the virus Uh, So things are not as they are right now, Uh, and one benefit of all of this might just be that we find out that nothing was normal in the first place. Uh, Everything is fragile and tenuous, and there's actually very little in this world. There is actually nothing in this world uh, to put our ultimate trust and insecurity in. So welcome to Christchurch. Yeah, I like to see the, the sunny side of life in all things. But uh, my name is Nathan, you Zoom folks. I think I know everyone here, uh, but if I haven't met you, I'd love to someday. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been working through Paul's short letter to the Colossians uh, over these past eight weeks. Chapter one was filled with just high and soaring theology of the person and the work of Christ. Chapter two was mostly filled with what Christ has accomplished in order to bring his people into a newly created reality. Chapter 3 has thus far mostly been about living life in that newly created reality, especially together as his people in unity. And then tonight, the end of chapter 3, and then into verse 1 of chapter 4, we're going to see Paul just want to work all that out, see how all of that he has thought about, that soaring theology, uh, all the way down to the nitty-gritty of our lives, even into the nittiest and the grittiest relationships of our lives that many of us have. A few weeks ago, we thought through the reality that home you is the real you. Who you are at home, unguarded, is actually a a revelation of who you actually are. Uh, Well, Paul is going to address now those relationships here head on. He is zeroing in, right in, on home you. He's zeroing in on marriage, on parents and children, 
in the relationship of master and servant. The master-servant relationship, as we'll see, uh, we'll definitely need to consider the the cultural differences, uh, but the relationship that we might be able to even draw on application to uh, the workplace. Now, a couple things right off the top here. First, not everyone in the Colossian church would have been married, would have had kids, would have, been, uh, would have owned slaves or even been a servant. Uh, but this is perhaps the point. In addressing men and women, fathers and children, masters and servants, he's addressing all of humanity. He's like leveling the playing field like he did earlier in verse 11 of saying that the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. All humans find equality because they are created in the image of God and all have equal claim to the saving work of Christ because it is the work of Christ and not their own work, not their own social standing that they are banking on. So even if you aren't a husband or a wife in the Colossian church or here with us this evening, even if you don't have kids or you aren't a servant or a master or you're even uh, employed or employing others, there are certainly principles through all of this section that can still be applied to all of us. Now, second and related, These are three model relationships that Paul chooses to show us how to serve Christ in all of life. Last week, we thought through in verse 17, where Paul said, "...and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father through him." So now, Paul moves from that verse 17 into this section, where in nine verses, he uses the Greek word for the Lord seven times. Most of our translations use the Lord six times and then the master or a master, uh, the same word for Lord. Most of our English translations use that one more time, but seven times altogether. So Paul is showing that in all of life, in whatever relationship you are encountering, we are serving Christ. Love others in humility just as Christ has, whatever the relationship. Here are three model ones, though, that Paul is going to give us. Now, Christians are not blind. We are not like willless, willless slaves. We are not doormats to be trampled on in compulsion under every kind of human authority. We'll get there. But Christians are still people who are under authority, caring for the well-being of the social structures in which we find ourselves. So we're going to see that play out here in three model relationships. First, serving Christ in marriage, serving Christ as children or parents, and serving Christ in the workplace. So first of all, serving Christ in marriage. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And we just jumped right into the deep end. This is one of the shortest verses in the whole letter of Colossians, but it is probably the most controversial. Verse 18, here's the thing though, when you're reading history, And while we do believe that Colossians is the inspired and errant word of God, uh, the inspired and errant word of God didn't just fall from heaven on like a golden scroll. It took place in a real historical time and place with real human beings. And so when reading history, a really good rule for interpretation and through thinking through history is to not note the things that we find unusual, but to note the things that would have been unusual for the context and for the time. So nearly every culture in the world at this time would have roundly agreed with verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. 
Certainly the prevailing Greco-Roman culture in which Paul was writing would have roundly agreed. No, no Colossian believer who is sitting in the room as this letter is being read aloud to them for the very first time would have squirmed in their seats at all when verse 18 was read, like many of us would. What would have actually caused their squirming, would have, what would have actually caused their ears to perk up, and maybe someone to raise a hand and say, wait, wait, wait read, read that again? Would have been verse 19. But let's not jump the gun, though. We'll get to verse 19. First, let's think through what verse 18 is and isn't saying, and why verse 18 is here and is needed. To our American ears, verse 18 uses a word that might as well be a cuss word. This word, submit. And as Americans, submission is something that just must not be done. It is to be avoided at all costs. MMA fighters train for months and years to avoid what kind of holds? Submission holds, right? Where you are physically or psychologically coerced and dominated in excruciating circumstances so that you eventually tap out. You submit. You give in to the will of another. You admit your weakness to the, your opponent's superiority, and you walk away in humiliation and in shame, and um, amongst all of the crowd cheering and chanting the name of your superior. But this is not what Paul has in mind. Notice who Paul is addressing here. Does he say, husbands, Make sure that your wives submit. No. Who does he address? He actually addresses the wife, who then is in a place to voluntarily choose, not in a place of weakness or humiliation, but in a place of power, but in humility to willingly and voluntarily place herself in this position. In other words, a husband should never quote this verse to his wife to get his way, to get whatever he wants out of his wife. We'll get to that in a minute, husbands. But wives, this is a verse for you to internalize, to process, to consider. But what is he not saying? Notice, unlike what he'll tell children in verse 20, he does not say, wives, obey your husbands. He does not tell them to obey. Your husband is not your boss. And if that's true, it should go without saying but just to make abundantly clear, other men in your, life, in your lives are not your bosses either. This is not a carte blanche command for all of the women of our church or for all of the women of society to submit to all of the men of our church or to all of the men of society. Nor does submission mean agreeing with everything that your husband says or does. Never thinking on your own, never seeking to change the mind of your husband. I'm so thankful for the way in which when I am impatient, when I am uncareful in my plans, in my actions, in my words, in my tone, for the way in which Marcy comes to me either afterward or even in the moment saying, hey, can we, can we talk about the way that that went down? Like, hey, I don't really like the way that you're speaking to our children lately. Like, she doesn't have to walk on eggshells because she knows that I'm, because she knows that I am, in fact, trying to live more and more into the reality of verse 19, but she also approaches these conversations in humility and in love, not in condescension or in uncaring correction. I'm so thankful for the way 
that God has used Marcy to bring about growth and change in my life, but she is not voicelessly silent in our marriage. Nor does submission mean that a wife must be the domestic servant of a husband. While it may be the case that some or many wives choose to stay home to keep a closer eye and hand on the the household and on raising children, this may indeed afford her greater time and availability to care for the domestic responsibilities of the home, but this does not mean that certain jobs around the house are feminine ones and certain jobs around the house are masculine ones. Domestic jobs and responsibilities are best handled and, defined, er, and divided with communication and with agreement between husband and wife. So the, the wife submitting to her husband does not mean that she is his servant. Nor does submission mean that a wife absorbs exclusive personal or spiritual strength and vitality from her husband. That she needs him to like, lead her in such a way that if, she, if he does not, then she is not able to live a mature and godly life as a wife. If that were the case, then single gals or widows would be missing out on something vital for their discipleship to Christ. No. So then what is submission? One author puts it like this. It is an attitude that says, I delight, this is the wife hypothetically talking, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take the responsibility for things and lead with love. I do not flourish when you are passive, and I have to make sure that the family works. So just as the church happily, as the church joyfully and humbly follows our loving and sacrificial bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, So a wife is to happily follow in the morale-keeping tenor of the home that the husband sets. So what does it mean to submit? I actually don't really know. (laughs) Uh, I don't have any, here's what it means. and I can just give you a vague uh, explanation for this. I know it's vague, but how does the church submit and follow the Lord Jesus? Submit to and follow the Lord Jesus. Of course, husbands aren't sinless or or not the sinless son of God. And of course, there are concessions to her following and submitting to her husband. But this now gets us to verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And here's the countercultural verse of the day. Marriage in the Greco-Roman world was primarily a civic good. It meant the expansion of society through children, and it meant social stability. Love was not an expectation of marriage, nor certainly a requirement. Most husbands, definitely of the middle to upper classes, would have had other women to find or express love. This wasn't a secret or even shameful kind of relationship to have on the side. It was just the way of culture. But the kingdom of Christ comes to invade and then transform every facet of life and of culture. Even the most common and everyday relationships of our lives. Whatever you do. So Christian husbands are not to think of their wives as property, as servants, as expendable, as ignorable. The genre of household codes that Paul is writing here was, was fairly commonplace. Aristotle wrote various, like paragraphs very similar to what Paul has written here in, in his Greek culture. Seneca of Rome and many, many others would have written paragraphs, pages, 
similar to what Paul is writing here about the way that a household should be run. But in not one Greco-Roman household codes that we are aware of outside of the Bible was a command or an expectation given to husbands to love their wife. But as Jesus loved and considered the needs of his bride over his own, so the Christian husband puts to death his own desires, his own needs for the good of his wife. In love, he is caring more for her good than his own. And one way, that, one way of love that Paul specifically puts his finger on is that a Christian husband must not be harsh. He must not be harsh in language or in actions with his wife. This is an area, again, of marriage that I'm so thankful that Marcy will just not let me get away with. The level of harshness that we're largely talking about, that she comes to me with uh, gentle nudges and corrections, is mostly just a frustrated or unkind tone that comes out of my mouth with an unkind tone with her, with our kids, with inanimate objects in our household. But again, a quick, hey, from her, is God's grace in my life to realize that I am not speaking, I am not loving, I am not living into the new creation life that God has created me to live into. Now surely, just as we did a parenting seminar last fall, and I told you last week we're looking forward to a seminar on singleness uh, coming up soon. We'll do something more focused on marriage uh, in our church for the future as well. But married folks, be talking about your marriage ongoingly with each other in your GC. Your marriage is like a garden. It takes care. It takes cultivation. It it takes ongoing weed pulling. And ignoring these realities, even for a season, will put the health of your marriage into jeopardy. So for married folks, one of the most upfront and practical ways that we serve Christ is by serving our spouse in marriage. But now secondly, serving Christ as children or as parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now again, verse 20 would not be weird at all in the first century. Even though he has upped the stakes, from using the word submit that he gave to wives to now obey that he gives to children. Children, until they came of age or likely till they were married in this culture, were treated not very much differently than household servants or slaves. Children were legally considered to be the property of the father. And while many of these other wider household codes describe the expected norms of obedience and respect of children for their parents, Paul now is going to throw a curveball. He's going to throw a curveball by addressing children personally. Like Colossian kids may have been aware of some of these household codes, and they know that probably, oh, we're going to be next. He's going to address kids at some point. I've heard stuff like this, and now he's going to like tell my parents how to make sure that they make me act. But then he actually says, children. And children in this Colossian church probably would have perked up. They'd be like, he's addressing me personally. He's addressing me unexpectedly as a human being. He's talking to me. So kids, kids, you or your parents are God's way of teaching you to live under the authority of someone else. Do you own your house? No, you, you own very little. 
Do you rule your house? Do you own the world? Do you rule the world? Sometimes your parents might be tempted to think that they do. Uh, Sometimes you might be tempted to think that you do, but you do not. And growing in your parents' home is a way to teach you that, to learn to experience that you actually don't rule or own the world. God is teaching you to learn that it isn't good to just think, to, to do, to say whatever you want to, whatever comes into your brain. These things shouldn't then just go out of your mouth or out of your hands. There are consequences for you, for others, of when you do or say just whatever comes into your mind. And so your parents want to help you to learn what it means to live, not out of love just for yourself, but out of love for others and for love for God and for the world. Are your parents going to do that perfectly? Are your parents going to teach you perfectly what it means to love others well? No, they're sinners just like you are. They will mess up in their own selfishness, sometimes even against you. But it's good for you to learn to obey. Something I learned many years ago that my own kids now know of what it means to obey. What does it mean to obey? And here's what our kids know what it means to do what an authority says right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Doing what an authority tells you to do right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. That means uh, that over 18 years or so, your parents want you to learn to obey immediately, all the way, out of a happiness of, yes, mommy, of, yes, daddy, right away, even, here's the thing, even when you don't want to. Paul says here in Colossians 3.20 that it actually pleases God when you obey your parents in this way. It makes God happy when you obey in this way, when you begin to trust and obey them rather than just yourself. Why? So that when you leave your house, they're, and they're no longer there to help you and to make you obey, you have been uh, growing in a quick obedience to their voice so that when you leave their house, you are still responding in quick obedience to God's voice. Right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Yes, God. Yes. Now, kids, I say this several times a year, but I want you to hear me uh, say it again. If your mom or your dad or another authority in your life, a teacher, a babysitter, even another family member or a friend ever asks you to do something that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you sad, that makes you scared, that makes you even feel pain, you need to tell another grown-up right away. You need to tell a teacher. You need to tell a teacher in your school or at church here. God does not allow any grown-up to tell any kid what they, to, what they are to do. So don't read this verse and say that obey your parents and in, in everything and hear that to mean that I must obey them when even they are asking me to do something that is mean or that is selfish. Is that clear? Do we understand what that means? God does not give every grown-up the right to just make you do something that is causing you to feel uncomfortable or scared. Tell someone. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
but understand what that means and be willing to talk about what that means with other people, other teachers, other friends, other parents. And if you, so in all of those things, if you remember one thing from this tonight, remember this, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And adults, you too, as American adults, this is a good MO for us thinking about how we ought to respond to our earthly authorities as well, to cultivate a greater trust and response and obedience to our heavenly authority. Of course, there are occasional, uh, occasional concessions, but our general MO should be when we receive a command or a directive from our earthly authorities, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And now, Paul is going to turn his attention back to you parents. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest your children become discouraged. So just in case some uh, Colossian dad was like hearing uh, verse 20 read and like elbowing his 12-year-old kid, saying, hey, pay attention. Uh, now the reader up in front of the Colossian church like turns the scroll around and it's a mirror. It's a mirror to the parents. And again, this verse is the countercultural one. In this day and age, who cares if your kids are encouraged or discouraged? I don't care. Just make them obey, right? But Paul, motivated by the love of God the Father, which has transformed hearts from the inside, is also concerned about the hearts of children in their obedience. It's one thing to require obedience from your children. It's another thing to require it in such a way that your children, like, just obey begrudgingly with beaten down discouragement. This is not the kind of obedience that Christian parents should desire. Just think about how in these first three chapters, God is pulling obedience out from the lives of his children. He is pulling and coaxing obedience through love, through sacrifice, through example, through life. So parents, there are many, many ways to provoke your children as you discipline them. Can we just all admit and agree that kids are really clumsy? Uh, the amount of honest accidents that happen with kids is way more than uh, any adults would like, and that actually we as adults get ourselves into. Some adults are more clumsy than others, but just think about uh, the, the level of amount of uh, spilled milk that comes from your children rather than from your own hand. So discipline, willful disobedience, not discipline a kid being a kid. Seek to gently course-correct the kid stuff by encouraging greater wisdom. How to act and respond when there is a glass of milk on the table with no lid, rather than disciplining when it is not, or it doesn't go the way that you would have hoped it would have. Another way to provoke your kids is the same thing that Paul confronted in husbands with wives, and that's harshness. Is your correction, is your discipline done in uh, losing your temper? Is it done in anger? Or is it done in self-control and in love? If your discipline looks, sounds, and acts not a whole lot differently than uh, one of your children uh, being corrected or uh, yelled at by one of their siblings or an another friend, if it sounds, looks, and acts just like the way that your children argue with one another, then you're likely going to provoke your child toward discouragement. One last way parents can provoke their kids in discipline is inconsistency. If I'm a nine-year-old, 
and one of my parents doesn't react or care that I'm doing something for this week or the next week or after two or three weeks or after a couple of month, months, but then I do the same thing that I've been doing for weeks or months, and now all of a sudden I am disciplined for that? Well, that's confusing. So parents, wisdom is required to decide the kind of things that you ought to discipline for, but you must be consistent. If you're training your child to obey your word so that they will obey God, make sure that your word, like God's, is trustworthy. If you say that you're going to do something, whether that's a treat or whether that is in discipline, follow through so that your children will learn to, that your word is good, that your word is trustworthy. All right, so that was like three or four minutes on parenting. Uh, if you'd like three full hours on parenting, uh, you can find the October Parenting Seminar that Ryan Kelly from Desert Springs was able to come and give for us. You can find that on the website or on our podcast or on, I don't know if, we, we very rarely mention this, but I don't know if you're aware of that we have a recommended resources page on the website, which is mostly links to books, but some even videos or uh, audio recordings. Uh, and on the recommended resources page of the website, of the website, there's a great section on parenting as well. Uh, and marriage, for that matter. So many more things for you to read, think through, and process if you'd like. All right, I can't believe how little time I've given us for our third and final section. But lastly, serving Christ in the workplace. Now clearly, with Paul addressing bondservants and masters, the context that he is addressing is not the same as your workplace. Uh, your workplace where you are paid often very well. Your employer provides benefits some financial benefits he provides, or your, your employer provides days off, oftentimes paid days off. And if things aren't going well at that workplace, you can just quit and go find another job, right? So it's not apples to apples here. And nor is Paul commending slavery. The kind of slavery that he is addressing here is not the kind of racial segregation and racial uh, chattel slavery that immediately fills our imaginations from the American South. We have records, historical records, of black Roman citizens owning white slaves. So the kind of slavery that we might think of is not the same. Again, we ought to be careful about importing our modern inclinations and enlightenment understandings of like universal human rights into the past. That's not to say that Paul or other biblical writers didn't have an understanding of universal human rights. In fact, without the teachings of the Bible and Paul, I don't think we'd actually have an enlightenment understanding of universal human rights. But more largely to the point, if Paul had started some like Spartacus-like revolution of calling for the universal abolition of slavery and calling for slaves to now demand their emancipation as equal uh, people created in the image of God uh, and call for this under an empire led by one singular autocratic empire, everyone would have died. Uh, these kinds of rebellions didn't last very long and would have been crushed immediately. Now there's much more to say there, but now, but for now, knowing the societal and the economic realities of many folks here in this kind of household situation, Paul's going to go on, and again, likely, many servants standing at the back at this meeting house in Colossae, uh, Paul is now going to do something unexpected, and he's going to address servants personally. 
specifically. Like, I'm sure some servant is standing at the back and hearing all this, and then he hears the reader up front say, and servants, and he perks up. Wait, he's addressing me? What in the world? Paul is dignifying their their humanity by addressing their own moral agency. And again, even the heart behind moral agency, the heart behind obeying a master. So he says in verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Don't just serve others when they're watching so that you'll get noticed, so that you'll get rewarded in the short term. Serve as you are serving the Lord Jesus. Work hard all the time. I worked at a summer camp in college where the, 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 the motto for the camp counselors every summer was that of bump the lamp. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you guys, but the director of this camp told a story uh, that in the making of the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, where there's like an interrogation scene going on, uh, the animated Roger Rabbit jumps through where, where a, 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 an actual real lamp was, and he made the animators go back and reshoot that if Roger Rabbit goes there, then the lamp needs to move. The real and actual lamp needs to move. And if the lamp is now swinging back and forth, then there's going to be lots of different shadows and even translucence through Roger's ears. So the whole thing needs to be redone. Now, for viewers, none of this would have been noticed at all. But animators, still in the business today, still call going above and beyond what anyone would ever notice. They call this bumping the lamp. So our camp director used this to encourage ownership of this camp and excellence in our work. Like if you see a piece of trash on the ground, not one human soul will probably ever see this or recognize it, but pick up the piece of trash and throw it away. Bump the lamp. Don't wait for someone to ask you to do something if you know that it needs to be done. Bump the lamp and get it done. If you do a job, do it excellently. Bump the lamp in all that you do. So in every job that I have ever had since 2005, bump the lamp has been one of my ongoing subconscious mottos. Caring for the well-being of the business that I work for in a thousand small, immeasurable, and not noticed ways. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily, bump the lamp as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul isn't saying that Jesus is like keeping a list of every single time you pick up a piece of trash and that every piece of trash is going to earn some greater reward in heaven or something. But Paul is saying that Christians ultimately work for one master. Not one manager or district or regional manager or some CEO of the company, but the Lord of heaven and earth. And that God has you in that workplace, at least for a season, very intentionally. So even if your employer makes it very difficult to want to work excellently for him or for her, work excellently in response to and 
for the sake of Christ the King, who is excellent and who is worthy to be praised and to be worked for in all that we do. And God is watching. He is watching our work as unto the Lord. And he is watching evil as well. Wrongdoers will be repaid. Justice is the Lord's, but it is not our own. So now again, and for the third time, Paul counterculturally addresses places of authority as well. In chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Masters, supervisors, managers, employers, do you own the world? Do you rule the world? Do you own or rule your employees? Is whatever you do because of your place of authority justifiable in your own mind just because you can? Or in the way that your authority, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, has ruled and has governed you in love, in humility, in service, in genuine care, and in life, so now govern and care for your own employees and your business. So again, we should just spend another half hour or maybe half a month or half a year on thinking more on this area. We're gonna, but for tonight, we're going to land this plane. Uh, again, on the recommended resources uh, page of our website, there's a great section on work and vocation. Some really great books that might help you think through some of these things more clearly. But for, to now, for, for tonight and for now, the, the saving and recreating work of the triune God to make and redeem a people unto himself and for the world does not just get played out on Sundays. It does not just get played out uh, in our GCs or in morning quiet times, but in every moment and in every realm and in every relationship of our life. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to wrap up Colossians. Chapter 4 is the shortest chapter of the book, and it wraps up with some personal instructions and commands. But since our God does not waste words, Colossians 4 is very much needed for us today as well. So we'll see perhaps more of you here with us in this building together next Sunday, Lord willing, as we will wrap up this book together. But I hope it's been encouraging for you. I hope this this evening, this paragraph of text has been helpful and encouraging to you all. The work of the Lord Jesus transforms every realm and relationship of our lives. Let's pray for God's help that it actually would. Our Father, we are thankful for your work of sending your Son to live and to die for us, to send your Spirit to transform and enable us God, we pray for the relationships of our lives. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our uh, families and households. We pray for our workplace relationships. We pray for our roommates and uh, the situations that we have in our classes and on our street with our neighbors in every relationship that you have given us, Lord. We pray that you would continue to make clear to us what you would have of us, what your work on the cross has come to do, not just to forgive us and to justify us, but to sanctify us, to ultimately glorify us, to make 
this work of love on the cross and the resurrection of the empty tomb made known to the world around us. Help us to serve you in the relationships that we have with others. Help us to work as if we are working as to one master, the Lord Jesus. Help us to love you. Help us to work for you in these ways. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.